happy birthday, Laura Tingle. Not quite yet, Philip, not quite yet, but I am talking to you from the mean streets of Canberra. Despite the fact I'm on a pedestrian mall, it's amazing how much traffic there is and there's quite a lot of rain, but always always on call for you, Philip, and I, the gladys. I know, and I value it highly. <laughs> Fifteen years since uh, Kevin Rudd's famous moment and one of the better moments for Australia, his apology to the stolen generation. Yeah. And today, an apology... Another apology in Parliament for the apology. An apology for missing the apology, Philip, from Peter Dutton, um, who was one of the people who famously decided not to take part in the national apology uh, to the Stolen Generations and has been the subject of quite a lot of criticism since. On a number of occasions, he's basically said, look, I made the wrong call on that. Um, to his credit, I think today he uh, addressed members of the Stolen Generation uh, who were present in the uh, galleries of Parliament House and the House of Representatives and the broader community of uh, the Stolen Generations and said, look, I made the wrong call here. Uh, Peter Dutton's argument is that he was still very much influenced by his experience as a Queensland copper and you know, w watching what had happened um, in ca cases of domestic violence and other you know, horrendous things that happened in Indigenous communities. Um, but he tried to address that, but obviously it's unfortunate that 15 years on, um, you know, you're still having to address that uh, rather than sort of being able to reflect on it and sort of saying well what as a nation did we do and what didn't we do and should we have done more and all those sorts of things um which was more i think the focus of what the government was trying to do it was trying to uh, reflect on the failures of what has or hasn't happened since um the apology and also try to incorporate it into the next big agenda item which is the voice I'm talking to the Chief Political Correspondent 7.30, a moist Laura Tingle, despite the fact that she's huddling under her famous Aspidistra. I understand, however, that Dutton still didn't attend a, uh, a rather significant breakfast. Sorry, Philip, I'm, I'm really sorry. What did, <laughs> something about breakfast, I didn't quite catch that. Uh, I understand that uh, Dutton still did not attend a 400-strong breakfast no, marking didn't. the date. He didn't. He didn't. Um, I, I suppose, Philip, I would be more... F I mean, like Peter Dutton, for all his failings and all those sorts of things, I think the more significant thing on the day was, OK, 15 years on, we're still... One of the big things was, at the same time, Kevin Rudd was... Um, making the national apology to the stolen generations he of course famously started the closing the gap reports this commitment to try to change the sort of indigenous health and education and social outcomes uh, between white and black australia and well you'd have to say it hasn't worked now um, uh, the albanese government the prime minister tried to reframe that uh, today um, and it was sort of interesting the way they did it. They weren't just talking about um, about um, about sort of spending lots of money or you know having really big ambitions. They were saying, look, we actually want to use this to um, you know implicitly 
do the sorts of things that you're trying to achieve via the voice, which is that you're trying to um, uh, re-empower local communities and local community organisations. So they've gone much more specific in the sorts of things that they're looking to do with closing the gap. And they're things that should be shocking to the Australian community, like saying, oh, quite a lot of communities don't actually have access to clean water. So we're going to have a program that focuses on delivering clean water. But I think really significant and probably lost in the headlines today was the fact that they're saying, we want to rebuild community organisations which have been disempowered by the last 10 or 15 years, where I think there has been quite a, quite a deliberate policy um, on the part of the federal coalition to say, look, you know, a lot of these organisations... Well, actually, going back to John Howard Phillip, to basically say that these organisations, um, you know, are sort of slightly dodgy and we don't want to listen to them. So I think as an example of practical reconciliation and, and a practical voice, you know, it's been quite an important day. Indigenous Australia's Minister Linda Burney said, quote, now we can really turn over our efforts or turn our efforts towards real action and real change. And at the top of that list, clean water. Mm. Yeah, and it is, it is, it is incredibly shocking that this is something that happens in Australia. Um, I remember there was a story um, during the drought, and the drought feels like a long time ago, but South Australia where basically they were having to truck water into some Indigenous communities because the water was so foul and so undrinkable. And, uh, and it's the case in a lot of communities, Philip. And so they're talking about clean water, they're talking about providing education facilities on country um, because keeping Indigenous kids in their communities often is actually a path to keeping them away from alcohol and away from, you know, uh, dysfunctional uh, communities and, um, and which is one of the issues that's come up in the uh, Alice Springs issues of the last few weeks that everybody was coming into town because their, their communities at a sort of infrastructure level didn't function anymore and suddenly they were coming into town with nowhere to go and it created all sorts of um, problems that go much more, um, in a much more com complex way uh, to issues that are just beyond alcohol. I, I brought a lovely birthday cake into the studio tonight with a very modest number of candles to celebrate your birthday. <laughs> but now I'm going to use it to celebrate something else, and that's the, uh, the government's made good on its election promise to let people on temporary protection visas stay here, around 19,000 of them. You'd have to say this is quite... Um, I mean, you know, government should uh, deliver on their election promises, whatever they are, Philip. Um, but if you know anybody who's been on a temporary protection visa, who's been a refugee or an asylum seeker, because we're not allowed to call them refugees in Australia, um, to, to understand what it means to know that you can actually plan your life, you know, is so profoundly important. Um, that, um, it, you know, it is a red-letter day for thousands and thousands of uh, people who live in Australia who are working and trying to get on with their lives. There it, are other in issues. In a sense, it's a sorry day for refugees, isn't it? It's a, 
a long-awaited apology of sorts. Yes, I think that's right. Um, it's a long, well, it, probably not sufficient, but it's it's an improvement. Um, but there are still 11 or 12,000 people, Philip, who are on other sorts of visas. Um, there are still, uh, you know, the, we don't know exactly the numbers because the government, you know, w whatever persuasion is cagey about it, but there are about 150 people still stuck in Port Moresby or on Nauru, and we don't know why they're still there. You know, maybe they're, you know, mass murderers. We don't know. We just don't know anything about why they can't be moved. Um, so there's about 1,100 people on bridging visas, and that's got no... That's got nothing to do with whether they are they have been assessed as refugees or not. It's just purely because they were moved in a fairly arbitrary way to uh, Manus Island or to um, Nauru um, in the early days of the change of policy that started with Kevin Rudd and then was um, sort of amplified by uh, the Abbott government. They were moved there and thus became the holders of bridging visas who have got no rights, uh, who can't study, uh, they've got no capacity to, to do anything with their lives other than work and pay taxes. We, we still need to know what's going to happen to them, plus a whole group of people who are in community detention in Australia, and um, we don't know what's going to happen to them either. Is this an opportunity for Dutton to run an, well, an Abbott-style attack on Labor being soft on borders again? Well, it's funny you should mention that, Philip, but yes, it is. And this is exactly what happened. Um, we saw the Australian sort of basically arguing today and the Daily Telegraph saying, well, um, the government was advised that this was going to uh, get the boats going again and all those sorts of things. Um, and um, it was quite interesting that... Um, uh, this argument was made that, um, and the and the opposition was going very hard on this. That you know this was going to create all sorts of mayhem. Um, now, um, the secretary of the Department of Home Affairs, one of um, we always like to say is you know national security czar, because <laughs> partly because he hates it when you say that, but he basically denied that there was advice given to the incoming government that this would risk. The, um, the, the uh, whole uh, sort of asylum seeker strategy, uh, which I think it in itself is quite interesting. But it, I think the events of the last few weeks do raise the question of, uh, you know, is it boat turnbacks or is it uh, the threat of uh, uh, offshore detention that deters people from coming on boats, which is it basically an agreed policy across the major parties? Um, now, th there seems to be some research that says boat turnbacks are the things that really dissuade people from getting on a boat. Whether that's the case or not, I think the, the uh, estimates are that offshore detention has so far cost Australian taxpayers about $14 billion. And uh, we've now got a offshore processing centre in Nauru which has nobody in it, but for which the government has just signed a contract worth more than $400 million uh, for the next few years um, to keep operating despite the fact that there's nobody in it. Look, I'm, I'm going to let you go back and enjoy your uh, vintage bolly, but very quickly, at the end of last week, uh, Alan Tudge resigned after facing a grilling at the Robo Debt Royal Commission. Uh, 
He doesn't officially leave them until the end of the week. Says it's for health and family reasons. Any comment? Look, I think for everybody involved, it's probably good that Alan Tudge is leaving. Uh, he, um, I think, you know, all of these events have taken a toll on him, uh, but more importantly, uh, you know, his evidence to the Royal Commission was not impressive, if I could put it that way, um, and uh, I think it was not politically viable for him to stay, but I think more importantly, um, even though he was not accepting responsibility as such for what happened under his watch, the fact that he's going is a statement in itself. Thank you very much. Scurry back to your pre-birthday celebrations, Laura, and we'll talk again next week. Getting in touch with ABC RN is easy. Join the conversation live using the ABC Listen app's call and text features.